But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you, you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is God's Word. Let's affirm our trust in it together. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. You may be seated. We started a new series last week on the lists of the Bible. And the idea is that in the summer when people are kind of in and out of church and you're traveling, that any one sermon can be kind of stand on its own. And yet there is a connection through the whole spectrum of Scripture. There's a reason why God gives us lists, and we're going to try to discover them and see how we can apply these lists to our lives. So last week, we looked at the list from the same passage from Galatians 5, and the list was the list of the works of the flesh. Today, it's a slightly more encouraging list. That is the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Last week, my challenge was not to make too many war analogies. Today, my challenge is not to use too many gardening illustrations. So we'll see. We'll see how we do. I have a couple at least. Um, the question behind these two lists in Galatians 5 is, can we change? That's the question. Can people change? I was watching a TV show recently, and that question was asked by a frustrated person who just realized that all his relationships are affected by his selfishness and lack of concern for others. And he asked, can, do people change? And the answer that was given to him by other people in that room was, no, we can embrace who we are, and we can hope that others embrace who we are as well, but we can't change, not really. I thought that was a very, very depressing answer. And certainly it is not what Scripture teaches. However, I think as you talk to people outside the church, and maybe even in the church, you will find that many people have come to believe that there is no genuine change possible. At best, you can sort of, you know, soften the edges a little bit and maybe try to manage your flaws a little better and just make peace with who you are. Scripture, however, says that we can change. In fact, these two lists given to us side by side uh, portray two different kinds of people. There are people who don't belong in God's kingdom who are marked by the works of the flesh, and there are people who do belong in God's kingdom, who do belong to Christ, who are marked by the fruit of the Spirit. These are di different people. And because we know that everybody starts in the first list initially, we know that there's a possibility in fact, there's a promise that we can change and bear the fruit of the Spirit. So would you like to know how that happens is the question, right? I, I don't want to believe that I can't change. I do not want to make peace with my selfishness, my sloth. These are not the things I want to embrace and just expect that other people embrace as well. I want to change. So how does that happen? I think this passage really helps us. It gives us these three things to learn about the nature of real, lasting, deep spiritual change. Number one, 
This change has organic nature. There's an organic nature to our change in Christ. Secondly, there's a relational setting for this change. And finally, there's the Christ-like pattern of change. Organic nature, relational setting, and Christ-like pattern. Now, let's talk about the organic nature first, and I'll spend most of my time on it, okay? So if you, you know, we get 40 minutes in and you feel like it's just been one point, okay, don't worry. Last two points are going to go much, much quicker, and, and hopefully I'll be disciplined with my words. It's a horticultural metaphor that Paul is using. He's using the metaphor of gardening, of growth, of plants, of fruit. And, and yes, it is a familiar metaphor. If you read Scripture, Jesus talks a lot about it. In the Old Testament, there are vineyards. It's a very common way of looking at change in the Bible, and for good reason, because that tells us something about how we change. Now, notice that in previous verses, when dealing with sin, Paul, the apostle who writes it, described it as the works of the flesh. There are works of the flesh. But when he starts talking about holiness and Christ-like change, he calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Sin is always self-propelled. It's self-produced. It's, it, it happens from within our own sinful nature. But spiritual growth depends on God. Work is something you can do. Fruit is something that has to happen in you. Somebody else has to, has to do it. You cannot just try really hard and be fruitful. That just doesn't happen. And so this passage doesn't give us a list of virtues to work on, a list of virtues to balance out the works of the flesh, to kind of contrast it and say, well, don't do that, but do this. No, because we can't manufacture any of these things on our own. I think it would be a total misreading of this text to see it as a list of rules and to make a list and to kind of mark it and to gauge how well you're doing and win any one particular virtue. This passage is not describing Christmas tree ornaments, right? Something you can buy, get out of storage, dust off, put it on the tree, right? No, those are the works of the flesh. You can do that in your flesh. What it's talking about is real fruit growing out of our life in the Holy Spirit. These are fruit that come out of our life with God. They are produced by God in us, by God working with us. They're not manufactured by us. We manufacture sin, yes, but we cannot manufacture holiness. God has to do it through us. Now, last week, I said that we cannot fight the flesh with the law several times, at least twice or three times in this passage, it tells us that those who belong to Christ are not under the law. Against such things, these virtues of the Holy Spirit, there is no law. Why is Paul bringing law in? Because it's a temptation for us to take the fruit of the Spirit and try to get it through the works of the law. And that really likens it to the works of the flesh. You do it in your own power. To be under the law is to put obedience, human effort, and discipline before our acceptance with God. Here's the logic of the law. If I obey, if I work really hard, then God will love me and God will reward me. The gospel logic is the opposite. God loves me, so I want to obey Him. God has given me all the blessings, so now I respond to it by discipline and obedience and pursuing holiness. Do you see the difference? We cannot pursue the fruit of the Spirit through the law, through the human effort. This is not how it works. We looked at this dynamic negatively in relation to sin, but the same is true positively in relation to growth in virtue. Verse 18 says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What's the contrast? Being led by the law and being led by the Holy Spirit. And after the apostle concludes this list, he says in verse 23, against such things there is no law. Now, law is fulfilled in those things. That's why the law cannot condemn a person who exhibits these virtues. But the law is not propelling it. The law is not motivating us to pursue them. Now, this is what Paul is getting at. 
These virtues are produced by God who is already present in our lives, who is already in relationship with us. We cannot manufacture these qualities ourselves because without the Spirit, our fruit will be artificial. It may be pretty to look at, but not real upon closer examination. So here's what I'm trying to say is, law says, I will do it, God will reward me. The gospel says, God has rewarded me in Christ. Through his death and resurrection, I am his. He's already here. He's already working. And this fruit is going to be the outworking of that in my life. God will do it because he's already committed to me. That's the difference. Let me give an illustration of how it works without God. Ben Franklin, in his autobiography, describes his pursuit of perfection. He created a list of 13 virtues. Why 13? I don't know, 13 colonies maybe? Maybe it breaks out evenly in the year? Not sure. But he came up with his own list of 13 virtues. His plan was to master one and then move on to the next one. His list began with temperance or self-control, and it ended with humility, which Franklin defined as imitating Jesus and Socrates. Here's the idea. Here's a list of things I want to be. This is the kind of character I want to have. I will start working on them. I'll address the first one, then move on to the second one, to the third one, finally end at humility. You start with self-control. You end with imitation of Christ and Socrates. What is his approach to change? He chose the virtues himself to work on. He alone worked on them. He started with himself, and in the end, he hoped to somehow correlate his character with that of Jesus and Socrates, whom he admired. This is the logic of the law. And unfortunately, many Christians fall in the same trap. We say, okay, I want to be better, so what can I do? Well, I'm going to work on humility, or I'm going to work on kindness. I'm going to work on being nice. And maybe when I master that, I'll move on to another virtue. Now, self-improvement is possible. Of course it is. But the kind of fruit, the kind of change that the Bible describes cannot be achieved by these means. Notice that the list in Galatians 5 is exactly the opposite from Franklin's list. It begins with love, which is a connection to God, right? And it ends with self-control. It doesn't begin with self and ends with imitation of somebody greater than you. It begins with somebody greater than you, and it ends with your own self-discipline. Spiritual growth, according to the Bible, is not self-defined. I do not come up with this list of virtues. God did. And it's not self-produced. I am not pushing out fruit out of my life. That's not, I can't do that. It is organic. It's based in our life with the Spirit of God and is given to us by Jesus who died and rose again to bring us into relationship with Him. This deep, lasting, thorough kind of change is only possible in this organic nature of our relationship with God the Holy Spirit. Now, before we go any further, and I'll come back to that because I really want us to understand that, we need to go through the list itself. Now, let me briefly go through it to make sure we understand what each virtue is so we can recognize it when the Spirit produces it in our lives or the lives of others. We begin appropriately with love. Love is selfless, sacrificial attitude towards another. It's selfless, sacrificial attitude towards another. Now, biblically, our love is always rooted in God's love. We love because God first loved us. If you know that God loves you because of what Jesus did for you on the cross and in the empty tomb, then you can love Him and love others. God's love enables us to prioritize the well-being of another person without fear of rejection. Fear is the opposite of love. Now, that's the biblical definition. In the world, definition of love is very, very different. What do you hear mostly today about love? Love is love. That's what I hear, right? Love is love. What's the point of that phrase? 
The point is that whatever attraction I feel to another person, I must be empowered to pursue it because after all, everyone deserves to be happy. Friends, that's not love. That's gratifying yourself. That's pleasing yourself. That's trying to make yourself happy at the expense, at worst, but with the help at best of another person. To want to make yourself happy by these means is not love at all. It's selfishness. That's what it is. It's selfishness. You're saying it doesn't matter what commitments I've made to anybody. It doesn't matter what I'm supposed to do for the well-being of my family, of other friends. It doesn't matter. What matters is me. And so I will do what I think will make me happy no matter the consequences. That's not love. That's selfishness. In fact, it's lust. Now, it doesn't have to be sexual, even though often it is. But it's lust because it's rooted in my own sinful nature, and that becomes the work of the flesh and not the fruit of the Spirit. Biblical definition of love is serving someone even when they don't respond and appreciate it. It's sacrificing your needs for someone else. Try to produce that on your own, okay? It's impossible. It's impossible because everything in you says, I want to be happy. I deserve to be happy. Let me just do what I want to do. Joy is the next one. Joy is contentment regardless of circumstances. Contentment regardless of circumstances. The opposite of joy is despair, is hopelessness. As Christians, we can delight in God Himself, in God Himself. Again, this is supernatural. You cannot produce it on your own. We can delight in Him when His gifts match our expectations or when they don't match our expectations. But because we know Him and we know that He loves us, we can delight directly in Him. There is joy in the world, of course. Joy in good things that God has given us. That's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. But what happens when you don't get what you want? A Christian can still be joyful in that circumstance. Peace is the next one. Peace is the sense of well-being or wholeness. Um, it's a state that's kind of undisturbed, untroubled by circumstances. The opposite of, of peace is anxiety and worry. One way to achieve peace is not to care. That's actually Ben Franklin's model. He says that, well, I'm not going to worry about the trifles of life. You know, just, just common accidents of life, they don't matter. Well, indifference is not the same as peace. The lack of care is not the same as peace. If you don't see something as important and you just don't worry about it, that's, that's not peace. It's apathy. Peace that comes from the Holy Spirit is rooted in our being at peace with God and trust in Him. So you can be at peace, undisturbed, untroubled by circumstances, because God is in control. Because at the core of your being, you are trusting Him, this person who loves you, who you delight in. Next one is patience. Patience is endurance of hardship. Another word would be long-suffering. Endurance of hardship or long-suffering. Now, the opposite of patience is resentment and anger. Our endurance does not come from our own strength, but from the conviction that God is in control and that He gives us power to endure whatever He places in our lives. Again, can't produce that on your own. Kindness is the next one. Kindness is readiness to help someone. It's a, it's a disposition. It's looking for opportunities to help others. The opposite is envy. Instead of comparing the well-being of others with your own, and being either joyful that somebody's doing worse than you or unhappy that somebody's doing better than you, we actually seek their well-being. We seek other people's well-being. That's kindness. Next one is goodness. Goodness is moral excellence or integrity. Integrity is a good word to use for goodness. The idea here is that the person is consistent in their character regardless of who they are with or what the circumstances are. Hypocrisy is the opposite of goodness. Goodness is you're a consistent, your character is consistent. You don't, you don't change. 
You're not different with this group of people and then you go to church and you're different with them and you go to work, you're different with them. No, you're consistent. You have a moral character. There's, there's a certain uh, integrity to you. It's consistency. Next one is faithfulness. Faithfulness is dependability or trustworthiness, responsibility or loyalty. You can use all those words to describe this virtue. A faithful friend is one you can always depend on. You know that if they gave you your word, they will do it. If they made a promise, they will keep it. If you call them, they'll be there. They're not fickle or flaky. They're faithful, dependable, trustworthy. The next one is gentleness. Gentleness is meekness or humility. The opposite is being self-absorbed and self-conscious. A gentle Humble person is self-forgetful. They just don't think about themselves all that much. They don't necessarily think less of themselves or more of themselves. They just don't think about themselves as much as they think about other people. That's gentleness, humility. And the final one is self-control. Self-control is, is restraint of appetites. It is discipline in choosing important things over urgent things. Unlike Ben Franklin's list, Self-control comes last. Because you do need to know what's important before you can choose what's important. You see, you need to be shaped by other things. You need to know who God is. You need to have a relationship with Him so then you can then deal with yourself. You can't start there, but you can end there. Well, we have a list of nine virtues. They are not separate or disconnected from one another. Now, if you're a careful reader of the Bible or if you're just heard many sermons about this passage, you know that fruit here is singular. It's not plural. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And it's not just because of grammar. It's also because this is one fruit that's expressed in these nine virtues. Let me put it this way. If the tree is healthy, it will bear all this fruit. All these things will be in your life. If the tree is unhealthy, the fruit it will bear will not be the right size or color or flavor or quantity. So it's better to think of, of this list as a list of descriptions of the same fruit. These are the qualities of the same thing that the Holy Spirit produces rather than separate types of fruit. You don't have pears and apples and grapes on the same tree. No, you don't. You have the same kind of fruit, and the same kind of fruit is this fruit of the Holy Spirit that is marked by these nine qualities. All traits must be present at the same time for it to qualify as real fruit of the Spirit. Did you hear me? All nine traits have to be present at the same time for it to qualify as real fruit of the Holy Spirit. Okay, scary? Okay, when you think about this, and if you just focus on one, like Ben Franklin, you actually won't even get that one because you need the balance of the nine. You need the connection of the nine to produce even one. And thus, if you produce one, you produce all nine. Let me give you some examples. They're correlated. They're not separate. If you have kindness without love, for example, so we've taken two, two virtues out of the nine. And if you say, I'm going to work on kindness, and then maybe at some point I'll work on love, but I will achieve kindness without love, you won't actually get kindness. If you are kind to someone, but you don't care about them, so you're not willing to serve them for themselves, then your kindness is actually self-righteousness. You're being kind to someone else for your own sake. Is it really kindness? I don't think so. So if I'm kind to somebody, but all the while I'm feeling good that I'm being kind, and I'm just looking for an opportunity for me to express my kindness and show everybody how kind I am, that's self-righteousness. That's not kindness. You need love for kindness. You need to actually love the person and do something for them to sacrifice, to serve them. That's kindness. But it has to go with love. You can't have one without the other. How about gentleness or humility? Can you have humility without joy in God? Can you do that? I think it's impossible. Because it's joy in God which fuels self-forgetfulness. You need to be so enamored with God 
that you simply stop thinking about yourself all that much. You can't say, I'm not going to think about myself, I'm not going to think about myself, I'm not going to think... Right, it's impossible. But you can worship God, and you can delight in Him, and that naturally takes you out of yourself. And before long, you realize, I really haven't thought about myself in a while, because I've been consumed with my delight in God, with my joy with God. Now, how about faithfulness or loyalty without goodness or integrity? So if you want to work on faithfulness, say, I'm going to be faithful, and then at some point I'll work on goodness or integrity. To be faithful to a friend, to be a reliable friend, requires ability to correct or confront them when necessary. You can't be a good faithful friend unless you're also willing to confront your friend when they are doing something wrong, when they're going the wrong, down the wrong path. That's actually what makes you a good friend. So you need to have integrity, right, to be consistent as a person, so you don't change your views because your friend has changed their views. You don't just support them and say, well, I know I don't really believe in this and I think it's terribly harmful for them, but I will support them because I'm a loyal friend. Well, you're, you're not a loyal friend, actually. You're not being faithful to them. You're not being helpful to them. And what happens is that your friendship ceases to be genuine. Now you have to pretend for the person. And both people now are going to enable negative change in each other. You're going to enable your friend to go down the wrong path, and they're going to enable you to not have integrity and to actually compromise your own moral beliefs. Oh, uh, one more. Integrity without kindness. And you do it within, mix them up however you want. Go home and, you know, and put this puzzle together any way you want. You can't find one trait that you can work on that doesn't need another trait or multiple traits for it to actually be real. So last one, integrity without kindness. So let's say you can say, I'm going to be a person of integrity. I'm, I'm going to be a good person. I will always say what I think. I will always act the same way no matter what the circumstances, right? You know what that makes you? Makes you a jerk. That's what you become. <laughs> Without kindness. Because you don't have a filter anymore. You just all you're concerned about is your own inner consistency. So you will say awful things because they're true. You will say awful things because you're just trying to be honest. Straight shooter, right? You I mean you know people like that. But if you balance it with kindness, oh now your integrity, your moral goodness becomes a force for good. And you will discern what to say and how to say it without compromising your own moral integrity in the way that actually helps the person you are with. Now, if genuine growth is organic in nature, it must be consistent, comprehensive, and symmetrical. It's easy to mistake personality for the fruit of the Spirit if you separate these virtues. If you take them each as its own thing, it's easy to say, well, I'm a, I'm a gentle person. Well, you're a gentle person by personality. That's not the same gentleness that the Holy Spirit produces. You can be a happy person by personality. Many of us, we're just, you know, we're just not easily frustrated, not easily irritated. You're just kind of happy-go-lucky kind of person. But it's not the same as having joy of the Spirit. Those are different things. You may be able to endure hardship better than others. But a stoic personality is not the same as patience as the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's, let's get practical. How can you assess your or someone else's growth? How can you say, I have changed or this person has changed? You look to see all the fruit growing together. You look at this symmetry. You look to see that all these nine virtues are actually increasing together. Do you see growth in all the virtues at the same time? Is it symmetrical and consistent? Because that tells you that the plant is healthy because it's producing all things at the right time at once. I, I'm a I'm a very inexperienced and hapless, to be honest, hapless gardener. And so I have planted roses last year. They're not doing well. 
Planted tomatoes this year. They're doing better, but it's still early. Here's the difference. My, my sickly rose bushes, when, you know, when the weather changed and everything started blooming, yeah, that one bush gave me one flower pretty quickly. That's it. That's it. Now, it produced fruit, right? It produced something. We can see growth, yes. But because it's not blossoming, because it's not flourishing, because I don't have a ton of roses, there's something wrong with that bush. Something is not right. Maybe it's the soil. I don't know. But something isn't right. On the other hand, I have a tomato plant, that, that, and all the tomatoes on it are green, right? They're not ready. They're not ripe. But there's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of them. Why? It's healthy. It's doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's not done yet. I don't see the fruit the way it's supposed to be yet, but I see the growth of all the fruit at the same time. It's not just one tomato. No matter how ripe it is, it's many. And so that's the difference. When the Holy Spirit is working in your life, you will see a multiplicity of fruit. You will see all these different virtues working at the same time. Not just one that could simply be just part of your personality or simply be an artificial thing that you have worked on. Now, it's perhaps a good time to emphasize that real change is gradual. We're talking about character traits. We're talking about changing somebody from within. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. These traits develop gradually. While, of course, there are period of rapid growth, yes. I, I think all of us Christians can testify we've had those significant seasons where the Lord worked with particular vigor, and sins, certain sins were uncovered and, and virtues were produced. Yes, that happens. But overall, the metaphor of organic growth tells us it's gradual, it's, it's slow. It happens over time. But the good news of this metaphor is that growth and fruitfulness for a healthy plant is inevitable. It may seem slow, but it is actually unstoppable if it's real. Let me give you an illustration. Early in his very long ministry in, in Cambridge, England, the evangelical preacher Charles Simeon, a very influential preacher, kind of late 1700s, early 1800s, when he was young, just starting his ministry, visited a home, the home of a, of a neighbor and pastor, Henry Venn. And after that visit, Venn's daughters remarked how harsh and self-assertive the young preacher was. And when your kids are telling you something about someone else, you better listen, right? And so this pastor, Pastor Venn, asked his children, asked his daughters to go in and bring him a peach from their peach tree. It was early, peaches were not ripe, so the daughters wondered why he wants to see a green, unripe peach. And he answered, he said, it is green now, and we must wait, but a little more sun and a few more showers, and the peach will be ripe and sweet. So it is with Mr. Simeon. And in fact, it happened. The Lord continued to work on Simeon, and through a series of hardships and difficulties and spiritual influences, he actually developed into a very fruitful Christian person. And so God does with all who belong to Christ. So if you look at your life now and it's just green peaches everywhere, it's a good sign. With a little more sun, a few more showers, they will ripen and you will bear fruit of the Holy Spirit. So let's, let me make another practical point here. While this change is internal and happens from within, it is dependent on what happens from outside. We can't manufacture the real fruit of the Spirit any more than a child can make herself grow taller. And yet, children grow, right? Why do they grow? Well, food, right? Good nourishment, exercise, sleep, love. Like, all those things make children naturally grow. They're not producing that growth, even though it's internally designed in them. And yet, they're growing because of all these right, good influences in their lives. The same with gardens. Even I know that plants need good soil. You can't cut corners there, I'm learning. They need water. You can't not be consistent with water. And 
great, good rain today, so I think we'll, we'll see some growth from today. They need sun to grow. If those things are not there, no matter what is in the seed, right, no matter what, what genetic material is, is rammed into that seed, it cannot grow. And so all of us grow by grace because God gives us these influences. He puts us in, in, in a situation where all these good things are on us and they're influencing us to grow. I mean, it's, it's a miraculous thing to put a seed in the, in the ground, right? And watch it grow. I mean, it's amazing. But it's growing because it's drawing from the soil. It's, it's getting life from the rain. And the sun shines and produces. All of that is happening from outside, and yet it's within it. How can that be? Well, it's the same in the Christian life. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, He will grow all these things in your life. But He will do so by bringing outside influences to you. So how can you grow? Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, if you've been given new life by the Spirit of God because of what Jesus did on the cross and in the empty tomb, then place your heart under the influence of the Spirit. This is what this verse means. You walk and march in formation with the Spirit. You place yourself under His influence. So you make use of the rich soil of the Spirit. You absorb the rain of the Spirit. You expose yourself to the light and warmth of the Spirit. This is how you grow. And then that genetic material of His life that's been placed in you already, you've been born again, is going to blossom and is going to bear fruit. Now what I'm talking about is what we call spiritual disciplines. Those are the influences. You read the Bible. You pray. You come to worship. You go to the table. You fast. You serve others. You give. All those things are spiritual disciplines that are designed to make you grow in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not in the flesh, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the soil and the rain and the sun and the care that you need to grow. These are God's means of grace. We can only grow by grace. We can only grow because God is growing us. But there are means of grace that God has given us to help us grow. This is what the Spirit uses to bear fruit in your life. Now I am done with my first big point, okay? So really brief next two points, okay? There's a relational setting of this for this organic change. Now, it's easy to see growth as a sort of this individual personal pursuit, like Ben Franklin. I will work on these things, right? I'll make a list. I'll pursue them. But the setting here is clearly communal. It's not individual. It's communal. Our section ends with verse 26. And maybe for some readers, you read that and you say, well, that's weird. It's not weird. This whole thing is in, in a collective context. Verse 26 says, this is after there's an exhortation to walk with the Spirit and the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Then verse 26 says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. He's saying growth happens in community with other believers. So pay attention to that. Pay attention to relationships. Pay attention to how you treat others, how you benefit from others. The fruit of the Spirit is made evident in the church. We see the work of the Spirit in community with each other. Yes, there's a personal commitment to holiness. There's a personal walk with God, yes. But because it's internal, because it's often hidden, it needs to be seen, it needs to be made visible. And where do we see that? You don't see it in the mirror. You see it in the church. You see it in the lives of other believers and how they see you and what they say about you and how they treat you. One plant may not be doing all that great, and you don't know if it's dead, is it sick, is it just a, you know, time to, to go into hibernation, it tells you how much I know about gardening. I don't know. But if I look at the garden, and I see, oh, but all these other plants are, are doing really well, right? That means something is at work. That means 
the soil is right, that means the, it's enough rain, that means enough sunshine. And so it is with Christians. You can look at any one of us and say, I don't know if they're growing. I don't know if they're really changing. It seems like they were, and now they're back to what they used to be. But if you look at the whole congregation, you can say, are we becoming gentler? Are we becoming, becoming kinder? Are we becoming more loving? Are we more joyful? That's how you know. That's how you know there's progress collectively. If we see it in one another, we can know that the Holy Spirit is at work. Now, if you look at these virtues, which of these virtues can you even develop in isolation from others? I mean, how can you pursue any of these things on your own? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, what can you do by yourself? Maybe self-control? Okay. If self-control is only refusing to eat another donut, right? Refusing to sleep in. If that's all it is, then yeah, you can do it by yourself. But self-control, of course, is bigger than that. It's resisting any sinful impulse. It's resisting any, anything that is coming out of your sinful heart and just needs to be stopped. So, for example, self-control is resisting not snapping at someone because I'm hungry, right? I've been self-controlled, but I'm really hungry, Now I'm just going to take it out on someone. That's, that's also self-control. How can you practice that? Well, you need other people around you that you don't snap at. Self-control is not giving into resentment because somebody has asked me to help them with something they can do themselves. That's self-control too. It's resisting that impulse towards anger and resentment. Well, how can I practice that? How can I grow in that? Only with people who ask me to do something they can do themselves. That's the only way that works. It's not ignoring someone in need because I just want to rest. I just want to chill. That's also self-control. It's saying I will choose the important thing versus what feels urgent and close to me right now. And then, of course, you have patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. They're all acquired in relationships. You can't do any of these things unless you are in community with other people. So join a small group. Help in a ministry. Volunteer in children's church. Did you hear me, right? You want to develop the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Volunteer with the children. You will know very quickly the level of fruit in your life. And you will need all of these virtues without any exception. And that becomes an arena for growth. That becomes your garden. That becomes where the Holy Spirit is working with you. Love, joy, peace are sometimes taken by, by some commentators as vertical virtues, those directed towards God. But in the Bible, all the vertical virtues are also horizontal. We cannot love God and not love others at the same time, for example. If you are at peace with God, you must pursue peace with other people. To have the joy of the Lord is not to blame others for your troubles, not to seek revenge. I mean, all of this is connected. So even these vertical virtues that are rooted in God are actually practiced in community and in relationships. So here's the application. Get involved in the life and ministry of the church because the progress or lack of progress in your spiritual growth is made visible in the church. That is how you know. And my final point, the Christ-like pattern of change. The Christ-like pattern of change. Where do we get this list of virtues? How would Paul come up with them? Well, one commentator said that this is simply a character sketch of Christ himself. This is a character sketch of Christ himself. Look at the manger, at the incarnation of Christ. God becoming human for us. Is it not humility? Is it not gentleness? The old word is condescension. That God condescended to us, not in a judgmental way as we would use the word today, but he became lower he came to our level. Is that not humility for God to do that? Do we not see gentle humility in Christ who is 
gentle and lowly? And then look at, at the baptism of Jesus. You remember when Jesus was baptized, the Father's voice sounded, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove rested on Jesus. What do we see here? Is it not peace? This perfect peace of the Trinity? Jesus resting in the love of the Father and the presence of the Holy Spirit? This is, there's no insecurity here. There's no self-absorption here. Jesus is resting in this peace. How about the temptation of Jesus? Temptation that followed right after baptism, right? Jesus gets baptized and the Holy Spirit takes him into the wilderness and the, and the devil is tempting him. Now what do we see here if not self-control? I mean, look at Jesus choosing again and again the important over the urgent. Was he not hungry? Was he not thirsty? Was he not tired? And yet, what did he choose? He gave up hunger, right? He, 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 he resisted that appetite for food. He resisted that appetite for reputation and for acceptance and for glory. He resisted all of that. Why? Because he is here to do the work of God, to save us from our sins, to glorify the Father, the important over the urgent. Now, how about Jesus' life, serving, healing, teaching? Is, it, is that not kindness towards others? Is that not grace? Do you remember when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples? And Peter rightly said, should you do that to me? No, I, I need to do that for you. And he, of course he's right. But in, in Jesus' kindness, in his grace, he served Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. I mean, is that, is that not kindness? Do we not see that in the character of Jesus himself? Now, what about his sinless life, his obedience to the Father, always saying what the Father wants him to say, always doing the works of the Father? Is that not integrity? Is that not goodness? That in any circumstance, Jesus was completely morally excellent, always doing what is right, always being consistent with himself, never straying, never being a hypocrite, never being dishonest. That's goodness. That's integrity. And then you think about that time when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. I take that to be an expression of joy because there was deep contentment in the Father's will, even though he was anxious, even though he was worried, even though he was struggling, and even though he was hurting. Those were the circumstances. But deep in his soul, he was content to do the Father's will. And that's joy. What about when he was when he was beaten and scourged and mocked and put a, they put a crown of thorns on his head, they stripped him naked, they spit upon him. What does that tell us? Is that not endurance? Is that not patience? Did he not exhibit long-suffering for us? And then, of course, there is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? So we would not perish. Do you see how all these qualities are working together? It's not just one, but all of them are working together in perfect harmony and perfect symmetry in the character of Christ himself. What is the cross if not an expression of his love? What is the resurrection if not an expression of his love for us, giving us new life, earning it with his blood, dying for our sins, rising again to justify us before God, to bring us into a relationship with God so the Spirit can bear fruit, so He can change us, so He can make us different. Then the last one is faithfulness, dependability. Where do we see? Well, we see it throughout His life, of course. But I'll note that particularly we see Christ's faithfulness in what He's doing right now. He is interceding for you. He is ruling over you. He is making sure that the Spirit is producing fruit in your life. And that faithfulness, that continuous salvation that He is, he is 
producing on your behalf, His continuous care, His attention to you right now will eventually explode in His return. And so we will see Him come again in glory. And all these virtues, all these qualities will be put on display. And we will see Him as He is. And He will keep every promise He's ever made, showing Himself faithful, dependable, responsible, loyal. This is Christ. And the Holy Spirit, through His internal work, through giving us this internal genetic, new genetic DNA that will, that will force us to grow. It's inevitable we will grow. And then surrounding us with all the means of grace to make sure that we will grow. What the Holy Spirit is doing is He is producing Christ-like people. He's producing people like Jesus. I will end with this quote by, by C.S. Lewis. In Screwtape Letters, Lewis imagines a senior devil teaching his apprentice. He's teaching them how, how, to, how to tempt people, how to hurt Christians. And every once in a while, he says something that's very true that he cannot deny about God. This is what he says. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men, God's love for men, and his service be in perfect freedom, it is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome replicas of himself, the devil says. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. This devil says, we want cattle who can finally become food, but he, God, wants servants who can finally become sons. The goal of God's work with us, the goal of salvation, the goal of forgiveness, the reason for the cross, the great news of the resurrection, the promise of his return, all of that is so that you would become like him. That's the point. That's why he's doing all of that, is so you would become like him. And in the end, if you belong to Christ, you will be made like Christ. So take courage. The Spirit is working in your garden, and a wonderful harvest of Christ-like fruit is inevitable.